This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to another Blood Red podcast. It is still the international break. I am Joe Rimmer and for their sins, I'm joined by Ian Doyle and Dan Kay to discuss all the goings on, or the lack of them. Um, regarding the Reds, lads, how are we? All the better for seeing you, Joseph. Oh, you brought me a lovely cookie in today, Dan, which... Um, just Tell me what you straight in my good books. It was it was a really an emotional moment. Really, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, and and how are you, Ian? I am very happy. Did Dan bring you a cookie as he well? He did, but I turned it down because His I just had some some mini cheddars. Um, oh, I don't know if you had it yet. I'm well, yeah, the nicest cookies yeah, I've yeah. ever had. I'm of course still celebrating though. Don't forget. Why well, are you so Non-football related. Challenge. It's a challenge. Best rugby league team in country, aren't they? As they as all the people were saying around me when I was there at Old Trafford on Saturday. I'm pleased for you, though. I'm pleased for me as well. Yeah, yeah good, good. <laughs> Well, to be honest, I'd like to, to stay and talk about that because there isn't that much to talk about. But we do have a, a topic to talk about today. Um, it is the international break, so we, we sort of had a little look through the calendar. Is it the international break? Yep, it is, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But we looked through the calendar, and on this day, nine years ago, on this day, sorry, on tomorrow, on this... This week, this week nine years nine ago. Years ago. Good save. Um, good save, thank you. Um, FSG... Bought Liverpool. No, they didn't. NESV, as it was then, New England Sports Ventures. It's a good start, this, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. Joe was still in short trousers. He's found it in I was not still in short trousers. Well, both of you two work for the Echo. I'm going to start with you, Dan, because you were there on the steps of the High Court that day. I was there. It was October 2010. Really, it was, even though it had been about seven years, it was the first time I was kind of done all my training and video qualifications, all the rest of it. The first time I was really kind of sent on a a live job, so to speak. And my recollection of it was, I think the we thought initially it was just going to be one relatively brief court hearing on, I think, the Tuesday morning. So I think, it, ironically, I think the dates and the days actually align with this anniversary. So I seem to remember we went down to London on the Monday afternoon, stayed over in a hotel and kind of thought, we'll do our stuff for the High Court, bump, bump, back, back, back in Liverpool Tuesday afternoon. So the, the initial court hearing on the Tuesday morning basically kind of like didn't really resolve anything. And it was decided immediately, right, well, you're going to have to stay down for an extra night mm -hmm. because there's going to be a further hearing on the Wednesday. Mm -hmm. What complicated the matter was it, was, it was this time of year, so it was an international break. England were playing at Wembley either that night or the night after. And our, our lovely logistics staff here at the Daily Post and Echo, as it was at the time, were really struggling to find us somewhere to stay. And I think in the end, me and Colin Lane, our chief photographer, who's still here now, were shunted out in, in some airport hotel out by Heathrow and Colin <laughs> was like the world's nicest man even he was angry about it but anyway Wednesday morning the second hearing happens and that initially seemed to be something of a victory for Liverpool mm. and there was a fairly jubilant scene on the steps of the high court with the I was in the mass media scrum camped outside with me Camcord in one hand and a mobile phone live streaming onto the Echo website in the other. And they all came out full of beans and um, Christian Perslow and Ian Eyre and Martin Broughton, who then was the interim chairman of Liverpool, came out at the time thinking and assuming that they'd basically secured the deal for the sale of the club to John Henry and co. And I remember Martin Broughton saying, giving a little line in, straight into camera, live onto the, onto the website saying, keep the faith. So it all looked like things were going well. Yeah. So we tootled off back to Euston and uh, my, me and my ultimate wisdom decided just to nip to Marks and Spencer's to get a sandwich for the train home. Unfortunately, I got the times of the train slightly wrong because just as I arrived at the platform, the train to Liverpool mm -hmm. Line Street was... <laughs> 
just steaming out. So I was like, blimey. So I came back out and rang our staff, our, you know, our organising staff back here and said, sorry about this, I've missed the train, blah, blah, what do we do now? And what they actually said was, well, in actual fact, it's a bit of a blessing you've missed that train because we were, we've just found out there's going to be a board meeting, a Liverpool FC board meeting at the offices of Slaughter in May, which is a high-powered legal firm in central London. So to be honest, we were just going to send you straight back down as soon as you got to Lime Street anyway. So they said, go and find yourself a cafe. We'll sort travel and hotels around there and we'll inform you what's, what the next step is, which is what they did in the next couple of hours. Found me a hotel somewhere in the middle and I went and dumped my bags and then basically went straight to this uh, legal office of Slaughter in May and basically stood outside the coal for about six and a half hours till about three in the morning. Got John Henry arriving, as he did, about seven or eight o'clock uh, and also got him leaving again. There wasn't an awful lot of information coming out of the club, but in the same way that I think a lot of, a fair few Southern-based Reds and expat scousers had kind of turned up to the High Court just to find out what was going on. Quite a few came down to Slaughter and May because obviously it was a huge national mm-hmm. sports news story. It was leading all the national and local news outlets. So there was massive interest in it. Um, so it, it, so it was good to you know, get the fans' take on it and obviously we got a fair bit of decent fan reaction to feedback to, to the bosses back here. About two or three in the morning, Henry finally made his exit out of back. We were tipped off. He was leaving around the back so we managed to get him going there. And then... I remember getting the train home on Thursday morning thinking, oh, well, it looks like things are, you know, things are going to go through, everything's fine. And it was round about this time that <clears throat> news broke that uh, there was another chain, that there was another development and that, uh, another uh, a financial institution called Mill Mill Financial that apparently had very strong links to Tom Hicks and, and his people had basically put in a higher bid than what Fenway had offered or NESV had offered. And, oh, sorry, I, I probably should have slipped to that. On the Wednesday afternoon, this this was another thing that muddied the waters. Some court in Texas, Hicks had fired, fired some kind of, I want to say restraining order. And I think it, I think that was the terminology used, even if it's not the actual context, context we would normally think of that in, that basically would give this court in Texas, in Texas jurisdiction over the high court. And the legal people around us were saying straight away, well, I don't think that's going to really work or fly but such was the desperate state of affairs at the time that <coughs> there was a real fear and concern that by hook or by crook Hicks and Gillette might somehow manage to prevent the sale going through or, or keep their claws in somehow so on the on Thursday lunchtime coming back when all this mill financial talk emerged I remember kind of feeling really quite anxious and, and a, quite down about the whole thing after all this it, we might be out the frying pan into the fire here um, and then basically it rumbled along through Thursday. Into, there was another board meeting on Friday, but they weren't sending us back down again by that point. God knows how much cost had been incurred at this um, once we reached this stage. And I, I seem to remember it being round about close of play, four or five o'clock on Friday afternoon. The news finally came through that the sale had been completed. And even if, you know, on one kind of one, one level, you're thinking, well, surely any business is obligated to sell to the highest bidder. Not in this particular case. The reality is Hicks and Gillette had defaulted on various loans and various agreements that they've been tied into. And the the, the, the argument I always put forward when people say it was a bit shady, this takeover, isn't it? It was, it was like, well, if you or I don't don't pay our mortgage or don't pay whatever loans we've got off, we, we, we owe, at a certain point, the lender becomes the decision maker then. Yeah. 
and they have the right to, to go whichever which way they, they see fit. As we know, Hicks and Gillette did try to take some kind of legal action sometime afterwards and basically got told where to go. So it was a, it was a very dramatic period in the club's history that um, I think anybody who lived through it will not forget because it you know it was perilously close really how Liverpool how close Liverpool came to um, ruin really yeah fascinating Dan really really good detail you've got one hell of a memory I give you that you've got a very good memory Donny um, you reported on Liverpool right throughout this period mm. uh, under Benitez and then Hodgson and, and Hicks and Gillette and then. NSV so what was the feeling like back up here in the offices back back at home at the time when this when all this was taking place well yeah because wasn't just obviously me there was the whole Merseyside pack we were writing on Liverpool at that time and I think we by the end we just got bored of writing we were more becoming business journalists than than football journalists I remember being they played Fiorentina in the the Champions League in 2009 uh, away from home they got got beat 2-0 you went to Florence. Florence is really nice place, isn't it? Yeah. First anyway. time I ever saw James Pierce in the flesh. Really? Yeah. Well, you've seen him a lot since then. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember <laughs> thinking he's small. He's small. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, he is correct. Uh, you put me off now, right? Fiorentina before <laughs> yeah, the game, yeah, yeah. but an hour before the game, writing stories about. Um, levered buyouts and share issues and stuff like this and we were all like we have no idea what we're talking about here but it was like a briefing that we got off Liverpool and that's the, that just went on for months and months and months and what I remember about that week because obviously I didn't go down to the High Court here and any of that they certainly weren't saying I think Dominic King went down because he went to the he, he did the England game he went to the, yeah, the time, Liverpool yeah. report at the time for the Echo he went for the England game and then popped over for the following day yeah. for that the final hearing or that the, would the make last, sense thing the, it was the Tuesday night yeah, the, was the Wednesday the last yeah. one that you that you were at and uh I just remember the actual announcement that had been completed was a little bit earlier in the day on the Friday because well, Liverpool playing Everton. Was it Everton was we the next game? We played Everton on the Sunday. Yeah, the that's right. So the, so the press yeah. conference was on the Friday. And just about a you know, quarter of an hour before the press conference started or just after it had finished, somebody from Liverpool just came round in the, the press room at Mel with a piece of paper that basically said, da-da-da-da, the sale's been completed, Liverpool are now owned by whatever. And I think everybody in the room basically said, thank Flip for that. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I think they'd had just about enough. So, obviously, but then again, you know, we're, we're journalists. Imagine what the, you know, the fans who've been following them, and, you know, because it was a very divisive time, wasn't it, for the... Hugely divisive. Because there were the fans who just divisive. wanted to get on. The, 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 obviously, with any football club, there are supporters who are far more active in the actual yeah. way that they want to see the club run. I mean, there always comes a point, say, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit, if we're talking about FSG, the tipping point for some people under them was in 2016, yeah. when they were going to put the, the ticket out. prices in, yeah. up. And the people walked out, and they were the people who would normally not do anything. They were like the yeah. main stand collective who just, you know, they'd been going for years, just got up and walked out. And so Liverpool went, oh, no, hang on, this must be bad. My dad's but, part of the main stand collective. Yeah, my, my, <laughs> yeah, my, my, yeah. I think my brother went as well, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there are those people, but... Few people are the ones who are really, really involved. This I mean, because it was because of you know Hicks and Gillette that Spirit of Shankly and all of those, you know, Absolutely. that group popped up, and that's become a very, very important part. One of the first things that NESV did was to say, "Well, we want to involve them." And I know Engaged. at first yeah. <clears throat> they perhaps, I'm going to say that they just didn't pay much attention to them because they did, but they certainly pay more attention now because they've seen that they're actually a legitimate group and they are somebody whose voice you know they need to be heard. So. Yeah, at the time, then you had that group of fans. The other group of fans were thinking, "Let's just get on with it." The ones who were worried, who've always gone to the game, who were thinking, well, "What's going on here?" And I think 
I mean, was it Blackpool was the game before, and wasn't it where they got beat two one by Blackpool at home before and the international? And everything was coming to a head. Hodgson, you had the Ho- yeah, the Hodgson era and all of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't a very happy club at the time, but it wasn't overnight as well when it, well, when NESV came in because the next game they lost two 0 yeah. to Everton. And I know what was it? Hodgson lasted for another two and a half months before he went. Daglish came in, which was a good PR. <clears throat> I'll say PR stunt because he ended up winning them the League Cup and got to an FA Cup final the following year, but. It was a good piece of PR to get him back. Um, so, yeah, at the time, it was like, just thank goodness this is done. Done and dusted. Liverpool can now move on. It was because it was uncertainty at the time when they oh. took over, because it was still Americans to Americans. Yeah. Nobody really knew what no. NESV is the word that then. I know that yeah. they'd, they'd been in charge of the, uh, the Boston Red Sox and won the World Series in 2004, wasn't it? I think they won it. Yeah, they did ended their very, I think very they'd long won it twice way. by that stage, possibly 07 as well. But I think 2004 was the time where they'd not won it for. Yeah, basically, yeah. So it's kind of there were some similarities there, and people, you know, until about a couple of days before, nobody knew who John Henry was. No. Everybody was like wanted to know everything about this person. So there was a sense of the unknown. But I think very early on, having what had happened, given what had happened, sorry, with Hicks and Gillette, where I think Liverpool in two thousand seven when they handed over to them were. Did they do due diligence as much? Remember, there was, was it, it was DIC, wasn't it? The, yeah. the Dubai investment. The Dubai lot. Dubai yeah, investment yeah, capital. capital I think it was, yeah. Early there was talk of, of Taxi Shinawatra, who ended up at Manchester City. They yeah, and there was, with him was it, it Peter Lim, was it? Peter Lim, Peter Peter Lim, Lim as well, yeah. The other. Gary Neville's mate. Yeah, so it's not as if there wasn't any interest in Liverpool, but whether, I think they just thought, oh, hang on, these Americans, they, they look, they've got a lot of money, they must know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, because I think... The thing is, I think, without wishing to go over the whole Hicks and Gillette thing and all over again, I think Gillette was... He's always he been... He was the first the one. one. He, he was the one who wanted it, and then he realised he couldn't quite afford it. And that's it, when he brought Hicks, Hicks in. in. And Hicks yeah. was obviously the big right. brash mm-hmm. Texan from Dallas, I think it's right, saying... Yeah, yeah. Um, it was the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, so he, but he's, he was always seen as the the kind of the... The, the face wallet. of it all, yeah. the face of it all, and he, he kind of threw himself out a little bit. Wrestled control, didn't well, he? Basically, really? yeah. Because even at the end, because I think I'm not saying I felt sorry for George Gillette, but I think if he had a bit more money, I think the whole Hicks and Gillette thing would would have been no Hicks. It would have been done a whole lot more different. But you know, that's years and years ago now, you know. So yeah. So at the time, I think people sometimes do forget that while people were happy, as Dan said, there was this kind of like. Okay, now now what's happening? At least the club's not gone to the wall. Where do we go from here? Because Liverpool were 18th, weren't they, when they got beat by Everton? Liverpool were 18th. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember who, but I've <clears> heard from a few people around about the time that Liverpool's financial situation was, was dire. And one of the reasons why Royal Bank of Scotland apparently were amenable to try and f- to find a solution was that they didn't want to be associated with a worldwide brand like Liverpool FC going bust. Mm. And a few people made the point that basically if we'd been a smaller club, a club with less of a worldwide global image and punch, we might not have been shown the same kind of patience and um, understanding from yeah. the financial institutions that you know, we're, that we're rapidly losing patience. Because, you know, if you if you keep defaulting on bills and not paying, not paying what you owe eventually people are going to come to look for you. The point Ian made as well, though, about kind of, this wasn't just kind of like, oh, well, we're taking over now, everything's all hunky-dory. In particular, what was in my mind at the time was that Henry and the new 
Americans had said, we're not going to load this onto the club. This isn't a leverage buyout. But Hicks and Gillette had said that when they were, yeah. when they came yeah. in, they were asked those exact same questions and basically lied. It took people a long time to, yeah. to accept yeah. what they'd said, you know, because everybody went through the figures a lot more closely. There was a lot more interest, wasn't there? Within six, within six, nine months of, the, of them being here, they'd brought in Fernando Torres and Yossi Benayoun and spent a fair bit yeah. of money. And Liverpool, yeah, we're still doing quite well on the pitch. But I think things started to, to deteriorate towards the end of that first year. I remember the Porto game in, I think, November 2007. 4-1. 4-1. Yeah. Uh, Torres Sorry. got a We had to yeah. win. We had a bad start. Yeah. And we had to win they the last couple of games. Yeah. games that was the night that there were protests outside the ground before the game. Do you remember? There was that, I think that was like the Rafa Tola. Rafa Tola, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big kind of like framed yeah. picture. That of, wasn't, was that the game that was around about, I'm concentrating on coaching and training my team? That was in November well, 2017. That, 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 that was the Newcastle. Newcastle. Conference before the Newcastle yeah, game in the league, right. which, which was definitely around about that It was same around the same time. Um, but from that point, you begin to, you began to see this fracture within the Liverpool fan base. Mm. I seem to remember the FA Cup tie against Haven't Waterlooville, which was a couple of months yeah. later in the yeah. January. Um, I think there were almost kind of like stand-up rows and fights on the yeah. cop because people were starting to really voice their displeasure and and concern at the state of the club. Do you think some I, people had their head in the sand about it all? Absolutely, 100%, Ian, definitely. And to, to some people's mindset, it was support the team. Whatever issues you've got shouldn't be brought to the ground. Yeah. And I, I can understand that, that argument up to a point. But when this, you, you know, the... the uh, a bad situation is snowballing out of control and threatens to overshadow every single aspect of the club. Well, it is going to be affecting things on the pitch, isn't it? And I think that split in the in the fan base became wider and wider. So about eight, nine months later, at the start of that 08-09 season, it was a lovely sunny day, early September, we beat Man United 2-1. Mm. Uh, Brian Babble got the win at the cop end towards the end. Now, before that game, there was another kind of like protest and a march around the ground. There's some great... One picture I, I robbed at um, used. You used. Used. I shared it quite recently. I'm, I'm, I'm still don't know who took it, but it's a great picture <laughs> taken from one of those little shops or like an upstairs flat above, like say where the HJC shop used to be on Walton Breck Road. And looking back down Walton Breck Road towards like the Sandon and mm. and Breck Road end. And you can just see a mass of thousands and thousands of people marching. But I do remember being part of that march. And at various points when we were going past the pub, there were people standing outside the boozers with their pre-match pints, taking the mic and going, look at those dickheads, or look at those idiots. Excuse my French. And so, so, I well, know, that's us out the Middle East. <laughs> I can't listen to that. Sorry, Sorry guys. Um, Get that um, beat down. And, 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 and others in you know who were part of the march were, were were having to go back at them, going, "Well, it's all very well you standing there, but when you haven't got a football club mm. to support next year or the year after, then maybe you realise where we're coming from." And it's never. It's and you know some people were just standing there and clapping, and people going, "Well, never mind clapping. Join us." You know what I mean? Yeah. We're not just doing this for our own good. We're doing mm. it because we love our football club and we don't want it to die. And there was a genuine, very real fear that that could happen. And Dan, do you think we talk about now fan culture now, and it's it's, it's mainly positive now, you know, the songs and yeah. But was this when fan culture was truly born for Liverpool in terms of you know you had Spirit of Shankly came out of this and, and, and fans realised that when they when they pull together they can make a real impact and, and make changes at the club? I think it's hard to say that's when fan culture was really born because you could argue Liverpool's fan culture goes back yeah, no, decades, no, I, Joey at the frog's legs, yeah. all that type of thing, going to the 70s. Acti I think, activists as fan activism. I think maybe, yeah. fan well, activism. well, I mean, without getting into it either, you know, 
we all I mentioned the HJC shop. Yeah. Obviously, that's been a, a, a recurring theme for thirty yeah. years as well. That, that's a bit different, though, isn't it? That was over. A, yeah, but yeah. but if you're using the word activism, yeah, yeah, I think that, that kind of has to fall into that category. What I would say though is that possibly this is one of certainly in the Liverpool context, this is maybe round about the time that the fan culture became militant in terms of or, or proactive in terms of actually challenging our own club mm. rather than outside influences, which is maybe what it had been before. Um, or you know, the, the previous culture was more was solely to do with the football and the songs and the flags. Yeah. Whereas this was actually to do with, we are supporters of this club. So in, a, in effect, we are stakeholders. Yeah. We might not technically own shares in company's house or whatever, but the reality <laughs> is this, this you know, well, all the various songs... You lying, Watson with flips, get out yeah. of our club. Well, it, it well it is our Watson club. Watson flips, I like that. Yeah, mm. that's the second. See, time I'm the thinking word, about the Far East. Second time the word flip has been used in this. <laughs> and and m- maybe this was the beginning of, of fans starting to realise that if we always talk about having ownership of our club, well, we actually need to kind of back that up with actions rather yeah. than just words. And to be fair, people did step did step up. People with their own jobs, their own lives, their own mm. commitments, putting in hours and hours of untold. Uh, work really you know in terms of getting organized and meetings and and figuring out a way through this as it was at the time it was because it was turning into a living nightmare on and off the pitch the blood red podcast from the liverpool echo let's talk about the the highs and the lows then of of, of fsg's um full full reign obviously there's only one place to start which is madrid Mm. um it took the the best part of nine years for them to return liverpool to the, the summit of european football but if you look at Liverpool as a, as a business, it's not actually that long a period of time considering where they were when they took over, is it? No, I mean, the, in that sense, yeah. I mean, if you look at it commercially, Liverpool were all, have always been one of the bigger names in, in the European football. And we go back to the old 2005, won the Champions League, the club shop was closed the next day, um, which now just seems absolutely you know, insane, basically. Yeah. It would never happen now. They're the easy steps that they've made, but they've put in a long-term plan. And the problem that FSG had, or NESV is when they, when they were, when they came in, is that they'd never owned a football club before. And while they were obviously <coughs> going to take advice off X, Y and Z, they, over time, were always going to bring in their own people. They were always going to bring in some of their own methods. And they were still learning as they were going along. Obviously, they've owned, you know, so as we say, Boston Red Sox, as they, they're yeah. a huge sporting institution. Some things do carry over from one sport to the next. But... And, but a lot of business practices are just the same the world over. It doesn't even matter whether it's sport or just, you know, newspapers or whatever. You know, the certain good practices end up with good results mm-hmm. off the pitch. And then the good results off the pitch have been married to stuff that's happened on the pitch because of some of the decisions that they've made. We're talking like the main one, you'd have to say, over the whole entire time they've been there is bringing in Jurgen Klopp, mm-hmm. which has completely transformed not just the results... It's like completely transformed. Don't forget, in 2014, they nearly won the Premier League under Brendan yeah, Rodgers. Yeah. So it wasn't all a complete transformation, but it's transformed the outlook of the club. It's transformed how attractive the club are to not so much investors, but commercial partners, because I know, you know FSG are still, I think as far as I'm aware, they are still looking for more investments. It's gone very quiet on that front. It, that, that was been a while for a while now, isn't yeah. it? Not like somebody buying them out or anything, but just someone to... Minority investors. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. But it's got to be on their terms. Yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. yeah. So that's basically to strengthen their own position, really. Um, but yeah, bringing in your club, he's also changed the the way that the club, well, basically the way the club feels, the way that the, the, yeah. way that the club is, 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 yeah, the connection with the fans. The connection that, between and in the fact, fans that's and interesting. I'm glad you said that because that's the thing that got lost in that whole yeah. thing of Hicks and Gillette 100%. and 
while FSG tried to bring it back with, as we mentioned, Doug Leach, and it certainly came back a bit under Rogers, but that was primarily when they were winning. Yeah. When they were not winning, it kind of very quickly degenerated. But with Klopp, I still get the impression that just say, for example, Liverpool go through a bit of a rough spell at some point under Klopp, I don't think he'd lose the fans or anything because no. he's got because of the way that he is and the way that the whole club has been run. And the reality is they probably won't go through like a, a bad patch because of the position that they're in. And Klopp himself has always he's always said good things about the owners, certainly in terms of them backing him in the transfer market. You know, Liverpool, how many times have they broken the transfer record with with, uh, with FSG in charge? I mean, Andy Carroll's won. Uh, in fact, it was Suarez Van Dijk, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Van Dijk. Alisson for the Well, I know, OK, they've, they've spent a lot of money basically and okay they have recouped it from selling certain players some who wanted to go some who didn't some who but they've been clever about it yeah basically yeah again that's to do with business practices Mm -hmm. well Jürgen Klopp coming in was obviously one of of the best decisions that they made but I think Dan you'd argue that the best decision they ever made was staying at Anfield well for me on a personal basis obviously you know I, I think I remember doing a piece on it a while back I think Liverpool first started talking about a new ground or redeveloping Anfield towards the end of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Initially, there was talk about possibly moving to the stadium out at Speak. So it, it's it's an issue that, would, that basically had been rumbling on, I'd say, for the for more than a decade by the time they arrived towards the end of 2010. And for me, I always felt that no matter what happens, Liverpool need to continue playing at Anfield. It's more than just bricks and mortar. Even if we move to Stanley Park, which is barely a stone's throw away, and I don't think I need to go into all the reasons. I, th- I think some of them would be fairly obvious. You know, there's lots of people whose, whose ashes have been buried there. It's more than just concrete mm-hmm. and turnstiles and seats and terraces and so on. So there's a part of me that has kind of felt if all they had done through their ownership was, you know, prize our head out of the the, the kind of like Jaws-like claws of Hicks and, uh, Hicks and Gillette and kept, you know, built us a new main stand and kept us at Anfield and taken the kind of possibility of Liverpool playing in Speak or Stanley Park or the Dock or wherever off the table. That, to me, I, I would have been eternally grateful for them just for that in itself. So then when you factor in Jurgen Klopp and Madrid and this fantastic, wonderful football team mm-hmm. that is giving Liverpoolians all over the world so much pleasure <coughs> and joy at the moment and has done for a few years now mm. um, I mean you know I think it's important to, I think to me one of the most impressive things about them is that they're they're willing to learn they're willing to adapt you know they've made mistakes you know and a couple of big mistakes you know I think to me the two biggest ones would be that we've already mentioned them well certainly one of them the the big whack in ticket prices I didn't that Sorry, again. No, I'm just, yeah, I'm yeah. just <laughs> crossing off the next question. No. You know, the, well, the, the potential huge whack in ticket prices to £77 <clears> in 2016, <throat> which obviously triggered the walkout and them lowering the prices and then ultimately the £30 cap on all away match tickets in the Premier League, which, as we know, has now been extended to for another three years. So arguably all football fans in the top flight mm-hmm. owe us Thank you for that, really. Mm-hmm. And also, even even this summer, even after the glory of Madrid and Barcelona and last season, this issue about trying to trademark, trademark the word Liverpool, they clearly massively underestimated the depth of feeling on that issue. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, we know that, that that's now kind of off the table. The fact that in both those instances, they've been big enough to put their hands up and say, you know what, we got it wrong. That to me is 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 the sign of because yeah, we all make mistakes. We all yeah. have a bad take on things sometimes, yeah. and, 
and get it wrong. The fact that they've been prepared to do that, I think, is massively to their to their credit. I think the other thing as well that this is more kind of like a perception I've had, and it could be wrong, but round about the time that they bought into Liverpool and the Premier League towards the end of the last decade was round about the time that financial fair play was starting to become well, a thing. Well, that's was... the reason why they, that's, they said, didn't they? That's the reason why they were so attracted to taking over Liverpool. Did they have the it actually come, come out? Because... Yeah, they said it at the time. John said Henry it at the time. John Henry said it, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I, I kind of always had this perception that by this stage, 2010 or whatever, Abramovich with Chelsea was already a thing. I'm pretty sure that... Um, that the Arabs were bought into Man City by oh, that yeah, point as well. I think that was 2008, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? So, you know, oligarch owners was now a thing. And even though they're obviously, they're not paupers, their wealth is not to the same kind of degree. They aren't yeah. just going to come and just spend willy-nilly. So I always kind of felt their ownership model was based on financial fair play being adopted and being enforced and taken seriously. And then within a couple of years, as the, as, you know, the... As the the teen tees or whatever people want to call them as started to wear on it when it became clear that financial fair play doesn't really seem to be worth a carrot. Yeah. I kind of had this impression that are they starting to regret it now? And if you look at you know what their kind of spending and their investment in the club up to 2013, 14, 15, certainly on the field, obviously the plans for the new stadium were already in place by then, but on the field, they you know, they weren't buying any Van Dykes and Allisons no. and top level players then. And I kind of, had this feeling, I wonder, are they almost looking for an exit strategy now? You know, on, along the basis of this wasn't what we thought we were buying into. We come into it with the right intentions, but the game has changed to a certain degree. But they haven't done that. I mean, I think as Ian said, the absolute fulcrum, the key turning point in all of this <coughs> was the appointment of Jurgen Klopp. And I've, you know, I have to be perfectly honest, when Rogers left, not that Liverpool was absolutely on its knees and... and certainly in, in a better place than they've been in previous years, I didn't see us getting anyone like Klopp's Calloway. And, and clearly because, that's been the game changer. Yeah, because I was thinking at the time when he was linked, obviously... At the why would he come to Liverpool? Well, basically, why yeah. would he come to Liverpool? You know, he, he did have the offer mm. at Real Madrid, didn't he? Which obviously was subsequent. We've discovered why he, he turned that down. And it turns out he had it from United as well. The previous year turned that down as well. So in the, it, it looks obvious now that what an absolutely ideal marriage between... Klopp and Liverpool, a team that you know, a club that's very emotive, wears his heart on his sleeve, and you know, a manager who is a bit like that, but he's more canny than that. In the same way that Liverpool fans are actually a lot more knowledgeable and can be made out. Um, and then you've got FSG, who kind of the same mould, but then obviously more straight down the middle. I think you should put them all together. It seems obvious, but at the time, Liverpool, you know weren't doing particularly well. They're still having the hangover from the last season where they hadn't where they hadn't won the league and that carried on over from losing the last game of the season 6-1 to Stoke City. And, you know, they'd bought players which the previous year it hadn't really worked and there was the whole thing got Rodgers and the transfer committee. And again, that's another thing. Klopp came in, didn't he, straight away and went, I'm making the final decision. He was able to say whether FSG had changed something or whatever. I don't know the answers. We'll probably never find out what happened there. But... He, he seems to be the one that's able to just tie everybody together. You know, the, the transfer just committee. Because he had the strength of character to do it, perhaps. And experience as well. Yeah. But then that, but then, then it comes all the way back to, he had to be persuaded to come there. How did they do it? Well, and particularly when, you know, he'd only left his job at Dortmund at the end of the previous season. Mm. He'd said that basically, you know, he wanted a sabbatical, he mm. wanted a year out. And he essentially cut that short after a couple of months because this job offer from Liverpool was on the table. And I suppose that, to a certain degree, that shows the appeal of the club. 
You know, the, the, it, even to someone of Klopp's reputation, which even, you know, it's, it's higher now, but it was still pretty high back then in 2015. Mm. Um, even, you know, someone of him who had already had office from Manchester United and Real Madrid, mm. arguably the two biggest clubs, clubs in the world after Liverpool. <laughs> um, he still knew that a job like Liverpool does not come along every day and that's why he was prepared even if he was maybe had promised his missus another couple of months on the beach <laughs> it was a case of sorry love for going beach. to Liverpool for well there you beach. go for <laughs> the beach yes he was as good as his word just a quick one before we move on on the stadium really. mm. um, <clears throat> there was a time I mean a lot of younger fans might might not remember this but I, I growing up I always remember that you had these great European nights but I'd almost made me peace with Liverpool will leave the stadium in the near future. Um, the fact that they didn't leave the same, that they stayed and they, they redeveloped it and looked to continue to redevelop it. Was that an early sign that they got Liverpool? Not sure about that. I think it was an early sign that they knew they didn't have to up sticks and it'd be a lot cheaper to build a new main stand. Do you think that was all financial? No, I don't think it's entirely financial. That's wrong, actually, because don't forget they'd been there for six years, sorry, five years by the time that they said, right, we're going to do this now. Mm. I mean, I don't know how long the plans took, but... You're right, there were the plans in the late 90s were moving to Stanley Park, wasn't there? Remember, it looked there, was a little, a, there was a sleek one and a Stanley yeah. Park one in the 90s, and then which looked a little bit, second Stanley Park. which looked a little bit like the Emirates does now. But yeah. by the time that Hicks and Gillette came and in, there was and that mad the, one with the glass side that Hicks and Gillette that looked curved, great, that looked curved, great, yeah. it did yeah. look great. Right. It I looked, remember the day it looked great, yeah. yeah. We had the we like, on the this is brilliant, it's never going to get built, yeah. But then. With FSG, you've got to bear in mind that they'd done exactly the same. They'd had exactly the same problem at Fenway Park in Boston. Where, having been to it, I, I went to it this year. I'm not sure whether you've been. I've you, not been to Boston now. It is a little bit ye olde, yeah. the stadium. It's not brand spanking you all the way around. Parts of it are. So when you're inside, it's great. Outside, you can tell that it's been there for years and years and years. Which that's is, part of the charm. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so, and I think, obviously, the new main stand, well, yeah, the new main stand, it's been there, what, three years now. It looks great. It's huge, but, but it's it kind of in keeping. Yeah, that's, that's going to say well, the way that they, the way that they built it with the bricks mm. and all of that. It doesn't look like this harsh structure. It, it like is, Newcastle, I always said Newcastle mm. were one side and then looks massively out of place with the yeah. other. Yeah, this is in keeping with the the flow. And, and it's yeah. and it's not just that they've also they've, <laughs> they've also thank you, uh, you they've, they've also renovated the area around the stadium as well. You know, whether further down the line they'll end up building the hotel that's been suggested yeah. and they do build more houses or whatever, you know, make it more of a commercial area, I don't know. But for what they've done so far, it has regenerated the area. I mean, I've never, ever known it so... It sounds a ridiculous thing to say. Walking up to the stadium, it looks nice. Yeah. You know, it it's does. a nice experience. Whichever, whichever yeah. way you come in from. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it never, ever used to be like that. Not just at Anfield, but any football ground. Mm. There are still some where it's like just being hurled in there mm. and then it's like well, it looks like you've gone back about 60 years but in a bad way at the same time I kind of think if they hadn't at least considered that properly they'd have been fools because just from business sense not, and I'm not a businessman obviously but Anfield the cop mm. you'll never walk alone they are massive cultural mm. assets that have global resonance so the idea of just throwing them away and get to, to say well look we've got a shiny brand spanking new stadium I, I, I always felt that their experience at Boston, where they, it's not a dissimilar situation where they've come into a, an old historic club, Sleeping Giants, for, you know, to use an old cliche, with an old iconic historic stadium that needs renovating. It, th th there's a lot of parallels there. <clears throat> and and you, you said it, it was <clears throat> cheaper to renovate the main stand. Now, that, it, may, that may well be the case. It wasn't exactly cheap. I don't know if, mm. I, I don't know if, it, if it 
I think in other circumstances, and I've heard people saying it may well be the case that um, Hicks and Gillette would, to a certain degree, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to stick up for them. They looked shady from day one and events proved that to be the case. But the, the credit crunch and the financial crash of 2008 and the, the massive rise in steel prices mm. meant that even if they were on the level, they had absolutely no chance of it getting off the ground. But I think as a, as a general theory, sometimes building a brand new stadium if you can get a good deal and a good price on the site and the land and everything, that potentially can be more economically viable for you than renovating a built-up existing stadium. Because, of course, the other thing that we had to bear in mind as well was that, you know, how do you renovate while the season's going on? And they did it brilliantly, didn't they? Basically built the stand behind the main stand. And so there was... I don't think there was... There was barely a reduction in capacity, maybe a couple of thousand, but yeah. it was... Remember the truss? Yep. The trust. Yeah, the trust. Yeah, do you remember about that? Yeah. Well, do you remember the false start because it went up during the summer, and I think our old colleague Alan Abarley, who now works for the Press Association, she was sent up to Anfield one day in the middle of summer, basically to live blog the lifting on of the trust, and uh, it was a bit, it, and it was, and it was a bit windy, so, so they basically had to postpone it and do it the next the, day. The enemy of construction. People kept clicking them. Well, I was gonna, we were gonna talk about signing, so really quickly, I, I will just say to you, mm. three. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Of what signings? Oh, wow. Signings under Sa- FSG. I oh, just under want FSG. One for each. Uh, what's the, the ugly? Good, the bad, and the, the ugly. <laughs> okay, the good. Um, Van Dyke. He's quite yeah. good at football. Yeah, not bad. Um, the bad. <sighs> Barkovic. Okay. Even though that's kind of harsh on him because I, I think it was just too much for him in the end. I don't think it was necessarily a bad signing in that sense. I just think they misjudged his character a little bit, and he kind of. Imagine if, if Markovic had arrived three years later down the line, he'd probably be really good under Klopp, for example. But anyway, that's you know, just hypothesising the ugly. Mario that's Balotelli? A, no, you hey, see. No, stop no, no, spoiling my thunder. No, I'm not going to say Balotelli because I actually think Balotelli, at the time, I thought, be, I thought he was great at Man City. I thought he was hilarious. I thought he was good and he also did stuff. Look at the game he played for Italy against Germany in the Euro 2012. Yeah. Aguero. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What problem I always thought system. with Balotelli was two things. One, he was in a struggling side. And two, I think he just was trying so hard to be... Something he wasn't. No, trying so hard to... Yeah, trying so hard to be... Sensible that he just forgot who he was. What did? Can you name a single story that Balotelli did other than the the penalty where he actually took a penalty off somebody and scored it? Didn't he? Uh, was it Besiktas? So, yeah, yeah exactly. Leg, the yeah. fact that you're struggling to remember it. Did he do anything bad for Liverpool? Did he do anything off the rails? Off there, the there pitch are rumblings on the iPhone stories and smoking at the training ground. Yeah, Simon. Yeah, but even the the just minor. He didn't spit at anyone. Yeah. Like, he didn't spit at Celtic fans. Yeah. Like yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So he, he never he never. Okay, well, put the club to so I'm not. I, you're not. I'm not. No, you have to come back to me on the ugly one. I think that's a very very unfair. I do want to hear you write this. I want to see you write this. Balotelli. I've already done it before in the past. Balotelli was in the past. You must, you must have been working it. Next you must have misread it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Done. Uh, well, if Ian's gone for Van Dyke, I'll go for Allison. Okay. Because he's a, he's a great goalkeeper. And just that reassurance. Obviously, we've, we've seen the impact that that had. I, I will go for Balotelli as the bad signing. The, the bad or the ugly? The bad. Big, big, and, the ugly? I haven't thought of an ugly one. It just works as a phrase. It does. No, yeah, but ugly suggests what? I don't... We haven't got on, so, any, you going for, no. so you're going for Balotelli well, as well? But Balotelli, Balotelli, and, you know, 
I liked him at City. I kind of thought, well, it'll be entertainment value. It'd be good copy for us, if nothing else. <laughs> and maybe part of the disappointment was he didn't score goals and he didn't provide stories. So kind of like, <laughs> even as a fan or a journalist, he didn't deliver in either respect. Yeah, well, they, that, that's partly what I was trying yeah. to say. Well, he was, well, he was I, just I, not being himself. I will say... Just, I would say Van Dyke for the good, but you could. Salah is another. Salah, 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 Maybe Firmino, the, 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 Firmino should be top of my list because at the end of the day, it was the transfer committee that basically bought him. It wasn't Rodgers, was it? I know. I know and so at a time when the club was in complete flux in the summer of 2015, to identify this player who now I think we all accept is one of the absolute cornerstones of Liverpool's success. <clears throat> I think, yeah, I, I've changed my answer. Firmino yeah. ahead of There, there was another player who was quite good that FFG signed, Luis Suarez. He was yeah, quite was good. Yeah. He was quite good. He was all right. Well, I'm going to go for the good. I'm going to go Van Dijk. I'm going to go for bad. Markovic, um, I, I kind of agree with your. Perhaps a different time would have yeah. been better for Markovic, but the ugly, I, I will go for Balotelli. I, I just this is my opinion. I know it's your opinion. You're allowed to run the opinion. I think you've got to be yeah. a certain type of character to play for Liverpool, and he wasn't it. And and if you don't, if you don't value playing for this club, then then don't be. And I don't think he really valued. I don't I'm think trying. he was really that worried about playing for Liverpool. They were just another club on his CV. Yeah. In terms of I'm almost tempted to say, even though we've kind of talked about this before we went on air just before, and I kind of quite like him. And I, to me, arguably the fee was worth it just for that one header against Everton at Wembley. But the circumstances of Andy Carroll's signing, yeah, but- it's quite ugly, really. Basically, how, however much we flog Torres to yeah. Chelsea for, we'll just slap 15 well, that, million on million. That's FS- kind of ugly. That's an example of FSG having to learn because they'd only been the job. Well, about exactly. About two in in their defence, in three months, yeah. so they didn't really. They were they, they were reliant on uh, Camoli, weren't they? Yeah. He was the one who made the decision. So you could argue you have players like you know, Stuart Downing, who I think Oof. was a decent was a decent player. Not for twenty million, though. Not for twenty million. If he'd have bought him for eight million and he was a squad yeah. player, he said that's a really good move. And I think yeah. it was too big for him. He, I think he's done interviews since where he's admitted it was a bit too big for him. And you could tell he was that type of Supposedly, player. Supposedly, wasn't the talk before he came to Liverpool? Some of the other top clubs like United were looking into him, and the feedback they got was that ability-wise, not a problem, but mentality. Well, is, that's, that's is he thing. has he got the fortitude to play for a top club, and his career would tell you that was the same for Ryan Babel actually. That's I got when he signed for Liverpool. Still starting for Holland. Oh, yeah, but he yeah. never quite made it. Let's move on because we're, we're going to finish this off with just a look to the future. Um, Doily, mm. FSG, they are businessmen. They, they are. They didn't buy Liverpool for for their children. They, they, they bought it <laughs> as an investment and they yes. bought it. Um, so what does the future hold for them? When will the, When do you think will be the day that they say, right, let's sell up now? Well, we mentioned you mentioned, Dan, an exit strategy before. They'll have mm. one. Yeah. They'll have one, and I just think what's happening. Are we getting is... close? Let me finish. Go on. We might be getting close to me giving an answer if you stopped interrupting <laughs> me. <laughs> right, uh, I think they can't... no, no, no time soon. Simply because Liverpool have progressed so. What's the word I'm looking for? Not exponentially or something like that. They've progressed in well, not more or less, more well, or less. The... Way yeah, yeah. Though, it's the kind of they've, yeah. they've, they've, they haven't progressed quicker than they thought because they've been there for nine years. But I think over the last couple of years, it's gone better than. Possibly they would have expected. Let's face it, 97 points in the Premier League last season. You know, that's unheard of for a team to do that and not win it. Eight points clear already this season. European champions. Full house is every home game, you know, commercial, commercial deals, deal. You know, they're going to get a new kit deal, which, you know, we've dealt with that many a time. And we'll, we'll, whatever happens with the kit deal, it'll be Liverpool that benefit from it, yeah. no matter what happens, because they'll end up with more money one way or another. So in that sense that, they probably think, well, hang on, we could make more. So as long as Liverpool keep on being successful, 
because this is the one thing that annoys me about not just Liverpool, but any club. I don't understand it when people come in and say, oh, they've just come in to make money. And it's like, well, yeah, that's exactly. And how do football clubs make money? By being successful. Okay. The thing that you've got... Someone can counter, well, what about Manchester United? But you know, Manchester United, yeah, they were successful for a very long time under the Glazers. And I think they've just kind of not so much pulled the plug, but lost a little bit of interest and just living off past glories. And or they lost will, their focus, yeah, I would say. And they will come a time where they'll go, right, we need to start investing. I was at the, as I say, I was at the Rugby League, which was played at Old Trafford on Saturday. And I know Liverpool fans will be going there on next Sunday. And I liken it a little bit to Barcelona, New Camp. It's a yeah. great stadium, yeah. but... It's no, seen better days. And they were doing yeah. some renovations there around the ground. You can see bits and bobs. I was surprised by that, actually, because I was under the impression they weren't doing anything. Mm. I mean, some people might have seen the clip on social media. I think last season where there was a hole in the roof in the corner mm. and the rain was so bad, it was just flowing th- straight through onto this one particular seat and they got it sorted. Was that they- fellow stayed yeah, yeah. there? <laughs> I, just, I just stayed I in think, the rain. Like, yeah, I think he, he was making a point, but a You think he was trying to reenact the, the Shawshank Redemption, you know, when he comes out yeah, of there. Yeah, yeah. Comes- yeah. <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, because, yeah, they want to make money if team's successful, they'll make money on the back of that. So as long as the team's being successful, I don't think they're going to be looking to sell unless there comes a point where they just keep on winning so much they go, right, it's not going to get any more than this. And plus, the other thing is, how old is John Henry? How old is Tom Werner? They're not going to be doing this forever because they're I'd both... i say Henry's... Yeah, he's getting pushing 70, 70 is he? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if he's not already 70. So there will come a time at some point where they'll go, you know what, I'm going to hand this over to somebody else. Mm. Whether that's somebody else taking over FSG... Or FSG just selling up completely because it probably won't just be Liverpool; it'll be everything else. Well, they're an ownership well. group as well, aren't they? I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. You know, there are many people involved that we don't talk about. Yeah, oh, we haven't mentioned Mike John Gordon Henry isn't there every yeah. single day answering every phone call and answering every email. You know, he's probably already semi-retired anyway. And as all good bosses do, like Joe here, delegates all the key jobs. <laughs> if he's so. like Joe, he'll just be in meetings every <laughs> single minute of the day. <laughs> no, but it's, I, I think potentially there's. There could be. They, we could still be talking about if things continue to go in the same positive, constructive vein. Yeah, they're they're a massive ownership group that, as well as owning, as we know, Liverpool Football Club, Boston Red Sox, various other corporations. Whether they've got their own media channel, I think they've they've, they've, they've got some interest in in NASCAR, isn't it? NASCAR, yeah, 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 some kind of motorsport. So I'm sure they have you know a structure in place that is able to. Administer and run these businesses while the people at the top, however old they are, say, aren't we clever and count the dividends? And I enjoyed your little hand motion for NASCAR. Uh, yeah. Just in case anyone wasn't <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, on that note, we will leave it there. Um, thanks for tuning in. I quite enjoyed uh, that, actually. Yeah, I thought that yeah, was good. It was, good. It was, good. It was good. better than talking about who's going to play left back. Yeah, yeah. You're both very passionate. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thanks for joining in. I hope you enjoyed it too. And we'll be back on Friday to look ahead to the big one, Manchester United versus Liverpool. See you then. Sorry. Listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.